Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just doesn't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 112 with Lime Ninja Lisa Todd. Also with us in the studio is our certified show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you'll learn what Lisa is doing in Texas to promote Lyme disease awareness, her Lyme candlelight vigil, and what you can do for Lyme disease awareness in your area. Thanks, Aurora. I also just want to mention and give a shout out, shout out for those of you who've signed up for the Lyme Ninja Keto Challenge. It's pretty exciting. We'll get to see some of those results. We'll be sure to share with you those as we go along. And Aurora, will you tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Lisa Todd? Seven years ago, Lisa pulled a tick from the back of her head. She went to her doctor to check for Lyme disease, who laughed and told her not to worry about it. Over the next seven years, she experienced numerous weird symptoms and went from doctor to doctor who diagnosed her with various chronic diseases. Finally, connected her symptoms to Lyme disease when she got in touch with a friend who had it. She did more research into the symptoms. Her first test, a Western blot, came back negative, but then she was able to get a positive diagnosis with an Igenix test. Today, Lisa is an advocate for Lyme disease awareness in Texas. Thank you, Aurora. And here's our interview with Lyme Ninja, Lisa Todd. Hi, Lisa. This is McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. Howard, are, are you getting all those rains down in Texas? Oh, my gosh. Are we ever? It has been monsooning sporadically here in Texas. Uh, not as bad as in Louisiana, but definitely been raining. Yeah, we just, it's funny. We've had a very dry summer except for the past, oh, two weeks. And then we kind of re- returned to our normal rainy pattern up here. In central New York, it's almost as gray and rainy, and some people say as or more than than uh, Seattle, Washington. So we're we're used to. Oh my goodness! Here, yeah. When we first moved up here, I I posted pictures I took actually quite a long time ago uh, when I was in college of blue sky and like flowers because it was so gray up here. <laughs> But you get well, you start appreciating the various shades of gray. Oh, it's a light gray day today. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so tell me what what's your Lyme story? How did you? What's your connection to Lyme disease? Let's ask it that way. This is always such a hard answer, or start a hard question to answer because trying to summarize my Lyme story and just a little paragraph. Oh my gosh, it's just been such a rough journey and a long journey that it's hard to just sum it up. Um, well, you know, we, I've been we, we can get we can get into it a little bit. It doesn't have to be super short. So, when did you figure out? Let me ask this: When did you figure out that sure. you had Lyme disease? That was a couple years ago. Yeah, a couple years ago. Um, quite the journey that was figuring that out because. You know, I have been sick for almost a decade now, and um, what started out as just a few symptoms, um, I think that some of the beginning symptoms were um, kind of off and on flu-like symptoms and anxiety and sporadic depression, um, IBS and leaky gut and gluten sensitivity. Um, those were my beginning symptoms. And I really had no idea that I had Lyme disease for the longest time because, you know, every time I was searching for answers, um, I would come across Lyme disease, but I would see that there are, you know, over 300 symptoms. And I thought to myself, that's not me. Um, but I'll kind of take you back to how this all started um, about, I can't remember the exact date, but... Almost a decade ago, I had uh, been driving to my sister's wedding, and I pulled a tick out of the back of my head, um, uh-huh. literally while I was driving. I had to pull over and yank this bad boy out. 
And, um, you know, I, I, the, the funny part about it is that um, I had been itching at this spot on the back of my head for months. I remember, you know, working at my sales job and just itching at this spot over and over, and I had no idea that it was actually like some living organism underneath my skin. But um, I remember I pulled it out, and um, I was a little scared because I Googled it, and I'm like, wow, you know, I think that this is a tick. And I just read that you can possibly get Lyme disease from a tick. So, you know, and actually I went to the doctor a few days later, and um, I showed him the tick. And he kind of he laughed at me whenever I told him that, you know, hey, should I, should I get antibiotics? I'm kind of scared. Um, and I remember leaving his office that day with him, you know, giving me very minimal information. He, um, he actually told me that you cannot get Lyme disease in Texas, which that does not make sense at all. But um, he told me that you couldn't get Lyme disease in Texas and that um, I didn't need to get on any, any antibiotics unless I started showing symptoms later on. Right. And... Um, you know, as you know, this this is a huge problem in Texas because just uh, based off of what I'm hearing from all the different organizations that I'm affiliated with, you know, they're all getting five, six phone calls a day from people that are telling the same story. You know, all of them are calling infectious disease doctors and 99%, if not 100% of the doctors are straight up turning them away and telling them that they can't treat them and that you can't get Lyme disease in Texas. So... Um, it's obviously a problem, but, um, to answer your question, how did I figure it out? I, um, just a couple of years ago is when I started showing more symptoms, uh, right after I had my son, um, it went from just a few really bad symptoms to, I mean, I'm talking hundreds. Um, it was quite possibly the worst experience of my life, um, you know, having symptoms, everything from heart issues. I mean, I'm talking heart inflammation, um, you know, my heart having a regular heartbeat, POTS, POTS uh, episodes and um, fibromyalgia, muscle pains, um, you know, kind of Bell's palsy of the face, eyes and mouth, uh, just an, I, an unexplainable weakness that I was experiencing every day, uh, fatigue, I mean, the list literally just goes on and on. Lung issues, asthma. Um, I mean, when I say hundreds of symptoms, hundreds of symptoms. I mean, like just looking into the sunlight, my eyes were like a petri dish because, I mean, still to this day, sometimes when I look up at the sun, all I can see are pathogens and parasites swimming yeah. through my eyes. But um, I finally um, put two and two together as the symptoms were piling up. I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, before I kind of skipped over Lyme disease, but as I was researching it, I saw that long list. I'm like, well, my goodness, I am starting to have majority of the symptoms on this list. So um, I did a whole bunch of research and I figured out that um, if I went to a doctor, that they more than likely were going to offer me um, testing, um, diagnostic testing that didn't work. So I figured that going to the doctor, they would probably try and give me a lab corp or a Quest test, which I already knew would probably give me a false negative since, you know, those tests miss majority of cases. So um, with a little bit of research, I finally found a doctor, you know, after going to 20, 30 doctors that didn't even recommend that I test for Lyme disease. Um, I finally found one of the few doctors in the state of Texas that, gave me the right test. It's actually the identix test. And, um, and you know, that test tests for, you know, over, you know, it tests for hundreds of Lyme or Borrelia strains instead of just a few like LabCorp or Quest. So um, that came back positive and I finally got the answer that I was looking for, but I feel like that was, that was really just the beginning for me. I had an answer, but um, after that, I, things really started to unfold for me. Um, I soon realized that, you know, Lyme disease is not just Lyme disease. I mean, I, I tested positive for a number of viruses, um, co-infections. So Lyme is very rarely just Borrelia. Um, you know, you normally get things like cytomegalovirus, Visa, Bartonella, Parvovirus, HHV6, 
mycoplasma pneumonia, Epstein-Barr virus. I mean, parasites are huge, um, mold illness, heavy metal poisoning. The, the list really goes on and on. Uh, but that's, that's kind of how it all started out for me. It, it definitely took a while to get a diagnosis. Um, but, you know, had my, had my doctor been trained in um, Lyme disease, uh, had he been properly trained, not CDC trained, but uh, trained with accurate information, um, you know, stating that Lyme disease can be a chronic illness and that, you know, you do need to treat it immediately and treat it in some cases long-term, especially if you catch it later. Um, had my doctor been up to date on Lyme information, he would have known to recognize, oh my gosh, that's a tick. This is serious. We need to get this girl antibiotics immediately. And hopefully, you know, hopefully she won't, it won't turn into chronic Lyme disease. So um, I missed that opportunity to save myself from it going from acute Lyme disease to chronic Lyme disease, really just from my doctor not being trained in Lyme disease. You know, it, so there's my short answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's such a familiar story. And even here in central New York, which, you know, we're by the Adirondacks, there's Lyme. We're not that far from the Hudson Valley where Lyme is absolutely endemic. And, you know, Connecticut also isn't that far away. We, st- we have doctors here saying the exact same thing. Oh, we don't have Lyme in central New York. And one of the things that I've uh, come across that seems to cut through the fog for reporters and for for lay people, I mean, the doctors are still going to resist this to some degree, but it's beginning to make some sense, is there's there's a company that does testing for dogs, and the testing for dogs is much more accurate than the human test is. And they've got exactly they've got an interactive map. So you can put in your zip code and it will give you the number of uh, positives for several different diseases, not just Lyme disease, but Lyme is one. And and so, so you can get an idea. Now, it's just one lab, but they're they're a big lab and they have a lot. So what what I did, the local paper did a little blurb on Lyme disease and said, well, somebody wrote in a letter. They said, we're all talking about the Zika virus, and somebody wrote in a letter saying, you know, Zika is very interesting, but the chances of anybody getting Zika here in central New York is zero, so why are you spending time? You should be talking about Lyme. So they wrote a response saying, you know what, You're, you're right, and Lyme is much more serious, but... The United County Health Department says uh, last year there were only 41 cases. So I went to this site and uh, pulled up the numbers, and dog-wise, it was more than 850. Yeah. Right? And that's just one lab. So I, I sent a little note to the reporter said, thanks for bringing up Lyme disease. It's so important that you're doing that. You know, Lyme disease is a serious problem here and is probably vastly underreported. And here are the reason why. And so I, I gave the three points essentially that, um, uh, you know, doctors aren't testing for it. The test isn't very good. And that, yes, indeed, that if you talk to veterinarians, they're going to say that Lyme is endemic. So they took it the ball and ran with it a little bit. I was really su- surprised. And they ended up doing a story saying essentially that. And they interviewed one local vet. And the local vet estimated in, in his office about 14% of his dogs come in positive with Lyme disease. And wow. according to the health department numbers, for the human percentage is point. Zero zero one seven percent. I did the numbers, so that's a thousand times difference in 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 reporting. Yeah. And there's you can't explain a thousand times different. Oh, dogs are more susceptible. Oh, whatever. Humans are immune. No, it's just that the anybody with any common sense is going to say, okay, that's that doesn't seem right. There's too much of a variance there. Ten times difference is a lot. A hundred times you could almost understand dogs are more in the woods than humans. But, you know, every dog that comes into this has an owner, you know, and the ticks and uh-huh. the nymphs and everything are coming off the dog and getting on the owners and so forth and so on. It's absolutely exactly. that there's a thousand percent different is just a thousand times different. It's just ridiculous. So that kind of argument gets through. 
people. So I just wanted to share that with you, too, because real excited. Sure. It, it made a difference with the reporters. They went, oh, that's interesting. That it, All of a sudden, they understood it. Because up to this point, it's, look, it's, you know, it's us. You know, we're just we're just another group of crazy advocates who are hopping up and down. But you show them some data like that and say, go talk to the vets. Don't don't listen to us. Mm-hmm. Go talk to the vets. And so, oh, yeah, the vet says it's all over the place. Well, then how come it's not in humans? Well, isn't that interesting? It's definitely underreported. I mean, just think about it. I mean, if you've got every doctor in Texas, um, you know, not testing for Lyme disease, even when a patient shows up with every single symptom or some of the main symptoms, at least. And, you know, even when they do suspect Lyme or when the patient um, presses for a Lyme test, that's normally what happens. You know, the patient begs for it. Um, of course, you're going to get misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. So I would say that the majority of cases in Texas are, you know, misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. And um, I know that the CDC um, recently raised their numbers from 30,000 per year that are, I guess, contracting Lyme disease to upwards of 300,000 per year. But uh, just based on some stats that we ran on people that have associated illnesses, um, you know, like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, um, MS, ALS, et cetera, you know, we're guessing that the numbers are much, much higher, you know, one to two million, if not more per year. And that's huge. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely. My guess, and this is just a total guess, I bet it's it's closer to three million a year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not far. And that, right, and so that adds up, and you know, some of those resolve in the first year, and then some of those don't. So you start adding up chronic Lyme disease over the years, and there, there are millions and millions of people out there with chronic Lyme disease, and probably only a small fraction know they have it. That would be my bet. Exactly, and what's heartbreaking to me is that um, you know I'll I'll meet people along the way at a lot of these doctors' offices, and they've got just terrible stories and a lot of what they've gone through could have been prevented had they gotten the right right diagnosis right off the bat. I mean, um, I met one gentleman who I'm actually good friends with now who was in a wheelchair for years. And as soon as he started treating for Lyme disease, um, I can't remember what he was diagnosed with. I think it might have been MS, but uh, MS and or maybe ALS was one of the two. But um as soon as he started treating for Lyme disease, I mean, he changed his diet. He got on some supplements, and he started doing some alternative treatments and a little bit of antibiotics. He was back to walking. You know, he was back to functioning. And that's what's, that's what's really heartbreaking. Um, and then when you look at people like um, Dr. Neil Spector, um, you know, the I think he's one of the top cancer researchers in the United States, um, you uh, know, an oncologist. Duke University, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you look at his story, I mean, that really says a lot because, you know, here he is, a very, very intelligent, well-known man, and, um, you know, he is rushed to the emergency room and needs a heart transplant, and come to find out, you know, he almost died due to untreated Lyme disease. I mean, it was the Lyme disease that caused his heart to fail, and so I just think that this is a bigger problem than most people realize, and that you know, everyone should be testing for this. So, yeah, you know, I have a patient who's a former surgeon. He had to retire because of Lyme disease, went on disability. And we have this conversation frequently, and I talk about going through the looking glass. It's like we've, once you've had Lyme or been around the Lyme community, you've, you're, you're Alice in Wonderland. You've gone through the looking, look at the looking glass, the looking glass, and yeah. nothing, nothing looks the same. It never looks the same again. And it's hard to remember being on the other side and how yes. blind we were and how it just it just didn't occur at all and now all of a sudden this world of stealth infections i think that's uh uh, a phrase that really fits these well. They're stealth infections. They're not out there like Zika virus or hemorrhagic fever where there's all these dramatic things happen and people dropping dead left and right. And those are horrible. Don't get me wrong. But the stealth infections, they just kind of slowly smolder along and just suck the life out of people over decades. You know? mm-hmm. And it's, it's yeah. they're, they're, the more they look, the more they're going to find. 
You know, it's th- like the first interesting thing, you know, was kind of th- uh, chemical medicine. So all the drugs and the antibiotics and things like that. And then, you know, the DNA, although that's the DNA medicine is really taking a whole nother turn. And I guess surgeries brought on by the different wars, incredible things happen with surgery. And now all of a sudden the, the bowel stuff is right. All the all the. Uh, microbiome that in your gut and how that influences us. But the next is going to be these other pathogens, uh, parasites and symbionts and whatever else they are that are they're hitching rides with us. And that I'm predicting that's going to be the next major, major field of medicine. And they're going to find all kinds of things inside of some of them are beneficial. You know, some of them are going to be kind of dose beneficial that if they get out of control, then all of a sudden they're going to harm us. And uh, we're going to have to have this whole uh, way of dealing with these things that, that don't kill off the beneficial bacteria and viruses in there that help us out. And, you know, we've got, a, got this sterile exactly. idea. Now, let's just kill. Let's kill everything. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't work. So many people have years and years of antibiotics and they do get better. But they don't, you know, they don't recover fully because of the damage done from the antibiotics. But um, I think that just similar to what you were saying, um, as people come down with chronic illness and, you know, they waste years and years trying to figure out what's going on with, you know, Western medicine, um, I think that they're starting to realize that a lot of what you're diagnosed with these days is really just naming the symptom and not going after the root cause. I don't know about you, but like, let's say if I've got Alzheimer's or I've got ALS, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, I mean, I don't just want you to label it and I don't want you to throw um, medicine at it to help with the symptoms. I want to know what's causing it, what virus, what pathogen, you know, what fungus. I want to know what parasite is behind it um, so that I can completely get rid of it instead of trying to mask it. And I think that is one thing that a lot of us are starting to wake up to right now. Right. For sure. Yes. And if many of those things are called by a stealth pathogen, then just nobody's been looking for those. So if you don't look, you you can't see. And there's a funny old saying that says, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And, you you know, we've got one eye open. We you know, we may not be scientists, we not, may not be doctors, but at least we know <laughs> know where to look. So you could be the smartest doctor in the world or the best researcher in the world, but if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. It's that simple. Exactly. Just like you said, in the, the the health departments down in Texas and here in Oneida County say, look, we only had 41 cases. In Texas, they're probably saying, look, we had two cases all year. Lyme disease is not a problem. So it's not tested for, so it's not diagnosed, and it's not reported, and then it's not tested for, and it's not diagnosed, and it goes on and on like that. It, until we get the the T Gen test that's coming online in the next year or two, and that really gets out there and in doctor's office, all of a sudden they're going to have this explosion of Lyme and co-infections, and people are going to go, "Holy smokes!" And then doctors are going to pretend like, "Yeah, we knew about this all the time." I know that's what's going to happen next. So yeah, since I've been sick, you know, I used to be a very social person, and I knew a lot of people, and I'm constantly out meeting people, but. You know, obviously, when you get sick, you kind of scale back and you got to reserve energy. So I don't socialize as much. But I was just going to say that, um, you know, since I've been diagnosed and I know exactly what to look for, um, I have people reaching out to me constantly. And um, just over, I guess, the past, like, year and a half, um, even with a small social circle that I have, I mean, I don't know that many people these days, um, I've helped get 13 people diagnosed in a very small time span. So um, that is just one example of just how bad the problem is. And, um, you know, not only have I had one tick bite that was, you know, years and years ago, um, I also had a second tick bite in my front yard here in Dallas, Fort Worth. So that just kind of shows you just how big of a problem this is. It, it really is huge in Texas. Yeah, and... And what you're doing is perfect and exactly what needs to happen now until the medical field change. You know, and it could happen in five years. It could happen in 50 years. We just don't know. It's the backyard diagnosis. I like to say that Lyme disease is diagnosed over the backyard fence. So it's people like you with their one eye open looking for Lyme disease and other infections and say, you know what? 
you know, you're not getting better. They're not finding a satisfactory diagnosis for you. You, you need to look in this direction, and you need to go to this doctor yep. who has hit both his eyes open and can help you. And that's right exactly. now. That's the only thing we can do. We, you know, we're working on changing things, and I know you're working on changing things in Texas. And we're going to talk about that next. But in the meantime, we have to get over that backyard fence and help each other. It's like we got we got to be the what the the Bayou Navy. We got to be like the little lime. The Lime Ninja Army out there, and just go out there and help other exactly. people. Exactly, because right now <laughs> our doctors, our government isn't doing it for us, and we 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 need to push for that change. That's part of the work that needs to be done, but we can't wait for them. This is too many people are suffering. Yeah, I, I definitely think that right now is the time to act. Um, you know, the I guess the government has has known for about the past thirty years that. Lyme is really a persistent section. I mean, we've got 700 peer-reviewed studies showing that it can persist after um, the recommended four weeks of antibiotics. So um, with all of the celebrities coming down with Lyme disease, I mean, definitely Lyme disease is in the spotlight. So, um, you know, even if you are one individual, I mean, I really think that right now is the time to be, you know, organizing candlelight vigils and um, really going after um, your state legislation and your state senators and, you know, writing letters, uh, setting meetings with them, um, talking to your public health boards and organizations. I mean, right now is the time to act. And for sure. Speak. Yes, for sure. Let me say, I'll say amen to that. Amen. And you did just that recently. Tell us what you did. Yes. Um, well, I, um, I, you know, obviously I wanted to do something because, I mean, there's no better way to put what I've been through. I'm I'm pretty pissed off at the medical community and I guess the powers that be, um, you know, because here I have chronic Lyme disease and it very well could have been prevented had, um, some of the public health organizations had, um, you know, the right laws and rules and protocols in place. So, um, you know, naturally, I, I wanted to set up the Texas Lyme Petition, and that kind of just outlines um, really everything that the Lyme community wants to be changed in Texas. And um, I, uh, what we really, what we really want done is we want there to be laws in place to uh, protect the very few doctors that are treating. Lyme disease long-term right now. Um, I know most doctors are afraid to even touch it at the moment. Um, so we want laws in place to protect doctors. Uh, we want doctors, oh my gosh, we are in desperate need for all doctors in the state of Texas to be trained on, um, you know, Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. Uh, most of them don't know Lyme is here. Most of them don't know how to test for it. Most of them don't even know the basics of Lyme disease, and um, most of them have no idea that there's faulty Lyme testing and that there actually is, um, you know, uh, good testing available or accurate testing available. So these are things that we want changed. Um, in addition, we want some laws, um, some legislation to be passed in regards to insurance companies and Lyme disease because right now in the state of Texas, I mean, if you treat long-term, um here, I'll give you an example. Um, what was his name? Uh, Chris Harris, the senator who um, got a bill passed in Texas. He uh, suffered from Lyme disease. And um, because the CDC does not, the CDC at IDSA does not recognize Lyme disease as a persistent chronic infection, you know, they, they claim that it can be cured within four weeks of antibiotics and you're not allowed to give any, any any more antibiotics in the four weeks. So basically you're not allowed to treat long-term. Um, he had to go to 17 different doctors and do back-to-back four weeks of antibiotics just because doctors were free to give him any more than the four weeks. So he rotated so, doctors um, to get more antibiotics, huh? Yeah, and I've heard that um, President Bush had to do the same thing. I'm not sure exactly how many doctors he had to go to, but I know that, but quite a few people have had to do this uh, because, you know, they can't just go to one doctor because the doctor will write four weeks of antibiotics. 
and no more because that's what they're trained to do in medical school. Right. But um, I just lost my train of thought there. So just talking about how he had to go from doctor to doctor to get the four weeks antibiotics, and it was the state senator, and then that set up what? He got the law. He got. The, he's working on the legislation, or got some law passed. He did. He got a law passed, and I think it was the SB thirteen sixty or thirteen sixty five. I can't remember exactly what the bill was, but the bill uh, was basically put in place to um, have Texas require doctors be trained in Lyme disease. And unfortunately, since that has been passed, nothing has happened. I mean. Um, Patients are still reporting that there's no CME training for um, doctors in the state of Texas when really, you know, there should be um, required CME training for everyone. Um, that way we don't have so many people being misdiagnosed and undiagnosed. But um, to help spread Lyme disease awareness, um, we actually set up this year uh, the Texas Lyme Vigil. And so um, the whole reason for us setting that up is, you know, it's right in the heart of downtown, Clyde Warren Park. Um, every year we want to come out there and, you know, just let people know that Lyme disease is here in Texas and, and there are people suffering and, you know, there are ways that you can get help. And hopefully, you know, as each year goes by, um, you know, we'll get, we'll be spreading more and more awareness and maybe the media will start picking it up. And, and our goal is, to catalyze change. I mean, we're not just going to be doing the vigil this year. I mean, a lot of us are coming up with some ideas uh, for next year, and we're going to be doing so much more. Um, and I really feel like uh, a lot of people in the Lyme communities that I'm in, they're all planning various events in the state of Texas. So hopefully we'll be getting the word out. That's great. How was the response in the Lyme community to the vigil? Were people energized? Did they show up? Are they inspired? Yes. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. Um, so many of us have only had contact through our Facebook group. Um, we have really just become a big family, helping each other day in and day out. I mean, with Lyme disease, you never know what crisis is going to happen per day. You know, one day you've got a heart issue, one day you've got a lung issue, one day you can't see, one day you can't hear. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, it's just rotating symptoms, so you've got to be there for each other, and that's exactly what we've done. So for all of us to come face-to-face and actually be able to meet each other and hug each other and laugh, I mean, it was it was beyond emotional. Um, a lot of us didn't know whether or not we wanted to jump up and down in excitement, some of us did, or if we wanted to cry, which a lot of us did as well. So it was a very emotional and amazing gathering, and I mean, all of us, I mean, we, we haven't been able to stop talking about it since we did it because we're so excited about it. So. That's great. And you're going to do it again next year? Yes. We plan to do it every single year. And, um, you know, we, we plan to keep doing meetings with the North Texas Lyme Support Group. And I think um, a few of us girls are thinking about starting um, a fundraiser or a charity of some sort for Lyme disease in Texas to help everyone who is not able to pay for treatment. I'm sure, as you know, um, most people spend anywhere from twenty dollars to $50,000 per year on treatment since um, insurance doesn't cover it. And it's it's really heartbreaking to hear some of these people's stories because um, 40% of people with Lyme disease cannot work, and so they really need help paying for treatments. And um, not to mention the, you know, the people that have passed away um, from Lyme complications, but also, more importantly, or not more importantly, but equally as important, the people who were just not able to take the pain anymore. Yes. Um, so we've had some people that have, you know, um, passed yeah. away just because they couldn't handle it anymore. They couldn't take it anymore. And that's really sad to see when, you know, maybe some of us could have stepped in and given them more support. So that's that's just a few reasons why we want to start our own thing. Are you familiar with Red Shoe Day? I am not. Red Shoe Day is, uh, I believe it's July 25th. It was started by Karen Smith and Lisa Hilton. And one, they're both people with Lyme. 
and they have it pretty severely. Uh, one's here in the States, and I'm going to – I don't remember which state she is. It's something like Minnesota or Ohio or out uh, – kind of Midwest. And the other woman's from Australia. And it was inspired – a friend of theirs committed suicide because of the pain from Lyme disease. And so they've started this International Red Shoe Day. And the idea is once a year to remember those people. And the other thing about it is, like you said, so much of this is done online that, that it's, we, when, when we have friends and neighbors who die, we know what to do. You go to the wake, you go to the funeral, you go to calling hours, so forth and so on. But when it happens online, we really don't have a way of expressing our kid connectedness and our, our grief and to be there for each other. And this Red Shoe Day is one way to do that. And really what they ask people to do is wear red shoes. Um, for that for that one day, so I, I've interviewed them each year that they've done that. That I've been on uh, releasing podcasts, and uh, so you can go back in the archives and just look up those and and get in touch with those women too, because that they'd give you an idea. Oh, that I awesome. think would be a great connection for you as well. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to dance around the word suicide, but yeah, it, it yeah. most definitely is a huge problem, and it's yeah. It's so sad too, because I mean, these aren't people that have that have a history of depression. Yeah, you know, these aren't. It's it's real working people, nurses, attorneys, doctors, uh, people that have always been successful and happy and social. But I mean, Lyme got to them, and it got to them so bad to where they just couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah, when suicide looks like an option, uh, things are in pretty bad shape. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the, it's the chronic pain and it's the lack of, it's the, the also a big lack of acknowledgement from the professionals. You know, you have to have a little bit of a rebel biker attitude to survive sometimes right now because there's so little support from the medical community. You know, you, you really have to go into the niches to find somebody. And if you're, you, if you don't have the ability to do that, like you said, with, all your examples, you know, you're going to dozens of doctors, literally, and they're they have no help for you. And some of them are down, yeah. some of them are downright hostile. On top of it, you know, it's one thing for a doctor to say, "Look, you know, I'm really sorry. I don't know what's going on. I can't help you." It's another one to say, "You know, it's all in your you're head. Tired. You're crazy. You need to get out uh, off of your own soapbox and stop being doing this and and you know get back into the workforce and and stop." messing around uh or there's yeah, no way it could be lyme disease you're crazy you're a conspiracy theorist person and you don't have no exactly. idea what you're talking about and really i mean i look back at um, how many doctors mistreated me in that way and i think to myself you know if they had just taken the time to test for the root cause i mean i have some serious infections that i have tested positive for i mean no wonder i'm sick and i just I, I think that a lot of people don't realize just how serious Lyme disease is. I mean, it affects every single organ in your body. And yes, it can be lethal and you can die from Lyme disease. And I, I mean, for instance, just my white blood cell count. I mean, I am operating on, I don't even know how I'm functioning with as little as um, white blood cells I have. I mean, this is right on par with cancer and HIV AIDS. I mean, this is all that and a whole bunch of crazy symptoms. So um, I, I just don't think people understand the magnitude at which Lyme disease can affect your life. Truer words were never spoken. <laughs> yeah. That's very well said. Now, how can people get in touch with you? How can Texans and we should, I guess you should let the Oklahomans, they're close enough, get in there too, or maybe from Louisiana if they don't have anything well, there. How can people get in touch with you? There's there's a few things. Uh, well, first off, they can go to the... It's a public group on Facebook. It's actually not a group. It's a page. Um, there's the Texas Lyme Vigil page, and then there's also the Texas Lyme Petition. And um, here, within the next week or so, I'm actually going to be posting... Um, I'm going to do a few posts. One, on how to organize your own candlelight vigil in your area because I feel like we should all be doing it in our community oh, um, as many times per year as we can. Let's, and then hey, I'm also let's do that. Let's do that nationwide. Let's have it all be on the same date. So more of an impact. 
Yeah, and um, and next year I want to make sure that it's in May for Blind Disease Awareness Month. Okay. To coincide with that. So do you but, have a, do you have a date yet? Um, not yet. I will be coming up with one very shortly. Okay. Because uh, I do want to get the ball rolling for next year. I know that this year the Texas Blind Bickle. We pulled it off in six weeks because I just kind of <laughs> came up with the idea one day. That's amazing. So um, next year we'll have more planning and it'll be bigger and better. Um, yeah, so I will definitely post about that. And um, another post that I'm going to do on uh, the Texas Line Petition page and the Texas Line Vigil page um, are ideas on how you can, as an individual, make a change in the community, especially in Texas. Um, I'm going to put... Um, for instance, the contact information for um, Greg Abbott, the Texas legislators, um, the state senators. Uh, so another thing that people can do, uh, Bill Zedler in Austin, um, he has been doing an amazing job to help fight for fairness for doctors. Um, I would definitely get online and you know call, email, see how you can assist him because you know if anyone's going to get behind the Lyme community, it's Bill. And another thing to um, be on the lookout for and contact to see, you know, how you can help them as well is the Sunset Commission. Um, they're in election this year, so it's definitely time to act this year um, because it only happens every 10 to 14 years. And so our time is now um, to get some integrative doctors in there and um, and some old non-chronic-minded people out. I mean, chronic illness is the main thing going on in the United States right now. And we really don't have any representatives representing people with mystery and chronic illnesses. So uh, we definitely need to contact the Sunset Commission. And um, so another website for you to go to is fairnessfordocs.com. And you definitely contact them and learn how you can um, support them and support the docs that are actually helping us. Those are just a few ideas of how you as an individual um, can help them out. And I'm sure if you contact them, they'll be able to, you know, give you small jobs that you can do to help with your part. So, um, And something else that I wanted to talk about is um, as far as changes in Texas, uh, we really need the Texas Medical Board to get a move on uh, protecting doctors and protecting Lyme patients. And so I would definitely reach out to the Texas Medical Board. And as you, as you all know, um, Greg Abbott runs the Texas Medical Board. I guess he's in charge of it. So um, he would be another person to reach out to in regards to changing laws in regards to Lyme disease. And um, i trying to think of what else people can do. Um, oh, since everyone is kind of pointing fingers and nothing is getting done in Texas, um, I do suggest if you call any doctor and they do not, um, they refuse to treat you, especially an infectious disease doctor, or if they give you the wrong test, please um, make a complaint to um, the Texas Medical Board. Uh, we know it's not really the doctor's fault because it all has to do with training in the state of Texas, but we feel like that will catalyze change uh, because these doctors do need um, to reconfigure training and diagnostic protocols in Texas. So that will help get a move on. And if you can, go to the Texas Medical Board meetings as well. And, you know, we need our presence to be known and we need them to know that we're going to keep fighting this fight and that, you know, changes need to be made. Changes need to be made ASAP. So, Lisa, you're on fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, so... I, uh, I really feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, Greg Abbott and some of these organizations have read the petition, and um, they've known for a while that changes need to be made, and so I, I really feel like they will be made soon. I mean, you can only hold off on doing what's right for so long. I mean, there really are people dying out there because of being misdiagnosed, and it's just so unfortunate. And I think that if um, enough people, um, you know, start fussing about this, uh, then changes will be made. I'll say amen again. Lisa, it's been wonderful speaking with you. I, I've really enjoyed your passion and your action and glad you're feeling better enough to take this on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> you're very, very welcome. 
This was a great interview. You know, her idea for a candlelight vigil is just a great way to get the media interested in Lyme disease awareness, newspapers and TV, local TV, that sort of thing. It certainly is. And there's so many people out there doing great works and working in their community to bring Lyme awareness out to the forefront. And just want to encourage everybody, just if you're thinking about something like that, just go for it. Really, that was Lisa's story. She just decided uh, to go for it and had some support around her and just kept pushing through and eventually got this event together. And they, they did a great job, got lots of media attention, and really it's going to help a lot of people think about Lyme disease when they get sick. It reminds me a lot of Paula Jackson Jones. Number 85. Number 85, yes, exactly. <laughs> Episode number 85. And she's the president and co-founder of the Midcoast Lyme Disease Support and Education Group, and that's up in Maine, the Midcoast of Maine. And just we're so lucky to have so many people pouring their heart, their soul, their time, their effort into bringing Lyme awareness. Uh, and I do things my little way here with the podcast and Tomorrow I'm going over to Syracuse and talking at a health food store there about beyond antibiotics and Lyme disease, help bring some awareness and some awareness of additional and alternative treatment approaches to Lyme disease. There's there's more than antibiotics. They're a useful tool, but they're not the only tool in the toolbox. So I'm trying to get that word out there as well. And speaking of that, we're really talking about the ketogenic diet here, and we got a great comment on Facebook from Joanne from Oregon, and she actually had some trouble with the ketogenic diet. And it's a good reminder to bring up a couple points that we're not your doctor, so don't treat us like your doctor. We're not giving you medical advice. We're just giving you information so that you can educate yourself and learn more and have conversations with your medical providers. That's what we're doing here. So we encourage you to experiment. We encourage you to research. We encourage you to try different things. But please, we're not your doctors. And Roy, why don't you just go ahead and read for us what Joanne said, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. Sure. So Joanne from Oregon said, hello, McKay and Aurora. I love listening to your podcast and your interview style. I have learned loads from them. I tried so hard to get into ketosis, but after five weeks, my body didn't budge further than a 0.4. Initially felt great, but as the weeks went on, I felt worse and worse. I also found out I have secondary porphyria since this Lime. The diet for management of this is basically the opposite of ketogenic, about 70% carbs and little meat or saturated fat. I am stubborn though and will try the exogenous ketones. Anyhow, I love you, I would love for you to interview an expert in this porphyry because it is very little understood and often occurs with Lyme and co-infections. We had to go look up porphyria. There was a little bit of a rabbit hole situation when we went to look up, to yes, look up porphyria. I had never heard of that disease specifically, and it's it's fairly rare. But she does bring up a good point. There are infections can bring it on, and essentially, it's a malfunction in the mitochondrial some some enzymes in the mitochondria and outside the the mitochondria where. The body doesn't make heme, which is a precursor to red blood cells and helps carry oxygen around. And these porphyrins build up. It's a chemical compound build up. And then they start oxidizing. So the iron's not used properly. And so things start oxidizing and create all kinds of other inflammation. And interestingly enough, this is Bob Miller. We're about to interview him again. He's doing lots of great work with genetic, the 23andMe test and genetics and nutrition. And it's one of the things he's very interested in is the oxidation of iron and all the inflammation that that can cause. So this sounds like it falls in that category. So I'm sorry that that happened to Joanne. Again, you know, we're not giving you specific advice. We encourage you to try these things. And this is such a rare side effect. I don't think it's something that's going to pop up all that often, but who knows, right? I mean, it's Lyme disease, so anything crazy can happen. And I understand 
staying away from red meat with this diet, I'm trying to dig further to find out why you would stay away from fat as well, because essentially this is a mitochondrial disease. So actually the exogenous ketones make sense where you're supporting the uh, mitochondrial function and help them create more more energy. So it's an interesting thing, and so it's probably a good bet that Joanne has other pathways that are not quite working right that also lead to this oxidation and this disease situation. So I would encourage her, Joanne, if you're out there listening, go ahead and uh, either go talk to Bob Miller. You can send me an email and talk about the 23andMe and the, the program that uh, Dr. Miller has figured out about looking at some of these pathways and see if you can't clean them up and and feel better. Because I think that's what got revealed here when you went on the ketogenic diet, that some of your detoxification pathways aren't clean, aren't working properly, and that things really started to back up. Because initially you felt better, which is often the case. And then when things start building up, when different pathways are activated, that's when all hell, so to speak, excuse my French, can break loose. Or do you have anything else to add to that? Uh, no, I think you covered it. <laughs> I found a little soapbox and stood on it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you want to learn more about the Keto Challenge and Exogenous Ketones, a keto supplement to help with the fatigue, with neurological problems, uh, with brain fog, it really, the ketones feed directly the mitochondria and see if it might be something you might be interested. Again, you know, check with your doctor, check with your healthcare professional. Lyme is so complicated that no one thing is going to cure everything. But I think feeding the mitochondria is really important. So you got to figure out a way to do that. And exogenous ketones are one tool in the toolbox. So that's something you want to try going over to our website. That's www.limeninjaradio.com. Have a look. You'll see the splash screen there. Just click on the button. I'll take you to the Keto Challenge page. And speaking of that, we're going to do a short little extra mini episode, Aurora. That's going to mm-hmm. come out in a few days, right? Yes, in a few days. And during that, we're just going to talk specifically about the Keto Challenge some more. I know there's a lot of interest in it. And unfortunately, it's only available. The product only ships in the U.S. and Canada. So if you're listening in Australia or the U.K., sorry. As soon as that opens up, we'll let you know. It's I've been taking it myself for a few days, and you're going to try it also, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah, so I just I bought it yesterday, so I'm waiting for it in the mail. All right. So we'll find out. We'll ask Aurora how she feels on it, if it makes any difference with her mental clarity and her energy. Right? Yes, indeed. Okay. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast could not end, would not be complete, unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas don't bowl strikes? They just knock down one pin and the other nine faint. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.